Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. The theme for Season 3 is better. Better everything, from AI to being fairer, big ideas to body language, if it's important to being a fairer person, business or planet, an expert and I talked about it. What follows is an edited recording, as Mouthwash is a live show created just for Twitter spaces, so the quality is more conference call than podcast sound booth. Sponsors are really important to me, so please take a moment to visit Ecology. They planted a tree in the TBD forest for every live listener we had. And if you want to offset your carbon footprint, you can do that easily. Just nip to ecology.com forward slash TBD conference and sign up. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com forward slash TBD conference. Also, I was honoured to partner with and test out Spaces Dashboard, the helpful tool that's making it super easy to find great audio on Twitter. Check them out on Twitter at Spaces Dashboard, all one word, and mount from Mouthwash for a surprise. Mouthwash is the audio show of TBD, the conference that people call TED without the bullshit. It's going hybrid March 31st, 2022. So get your tickets for the in-person event or the global live stream at universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Use the code Mouthwash. You'll even get 25% off every ticket you buy. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Sign up to the newsletter on my Twitter profile. That's Paul underscore underscore Armstrong. And you'll get informed about all future seasons of Mouthwash. Trust me, you'll want to hear what we have coming up. Finally, as with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust. Enjoy the show. All right, it's time for some more Mouthwash. Fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. The conference that attendees say is like TED without the BS. It's a strange time around the world, Zoom fatigue to climate change, the great resignation to the metaverse. A lot seems scary, unfamiliar, and people are rethinking everything from core beliefs to the way they work. Uh, A core theme that does seem to be emerging is a desire to improve things and make things better, including themselves. So that's the theme for season three, better, better everything. From PR to AI, body language to open innovation, I'm going to be speaking with massive brains and execs from Twitter, Walmart to Babylon, about making you and the world we live in a better place. Season three includes best-selling authors, security experts, speech coaches, and Silicon Valley startups who want to reverse your aging process. It's going to be a great season. Make sure you get the SMS reminders so you don't miss a minute of it. Okay, let's get on with the show. Today's brain is Matthew Cockerell, designer and thinker extraordinaire. Welcome to the show, Matthew. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Paul. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Great. Before I chat more with Matthew, let's chat about where we are, how you can get involved. Twitter Spaces is still new to a lot of people, so let's explore it a bit. Um, On the mobile app, you'll be able to see uh, the top bit is what we call the Nest. That's where I or any speaker can post tweets like the one that you see up there at the moment. Uh, It's a pretty cool feature on Twitter Spaces. You can follow accounts, links, see pictures and that sort of stuff. It's pretty handy and um, unique to Twitter Spaces, although lots of people are actually trying to copy it. Uh, You can have up to 12 speakers at a time in any space and if you want the mic just click the microphone at the bottom left hand corner of most mobile devices and uh, you'll be able to uh, take the mic once people give you that great access we actually don't do that on uh, mouthwash we tend to favor um, the hashtag or my dm so if you want to ask a question use the hashtag just click the um, link in the uh, 
uh, description at the top or DM, and that's totally fine, and I'll work them in as much as I can, okay? Um, click the three dots on the app to find any captions if you need accessibility features or captions. They're all there if you need them. Twitter's making it very accessible for everyone. Okay, time to help me and the world. Uh, if you take a look at the nest, the people in the room, that'd be great. Um, and you can see that I put a tweet up about um, the space being live. Uh, it's great, not just for my ego, for you to retweet that. So just click through, hit retweet. Uh, the reason for that is Ecology. They're a great company that help carbon offsetting. And they're actually giving a tree for every live listener we get in uh, season. So, uh, yeah, if you want to take uh, just a second to retweet that to your followers, that would be great. And if you want to find out more about Ecology, uh, you just head over to ecology.com uh, and that's e-c-o-l-o-g-i.com and you can set up your own profile check out our forest at tbd conference uh, track your impact set low carbon goals and again uh, they're all about reducing the world's emissions by half by 2040 through collective action so again find out more over at ecology.com we're also very proud to be sponsored by Spaces Dashboard. They're a company that's helping good audio be found. They provide new and a very easy way to see all the latest live, upcoming and past conversations on Twitter Spaces. Spaces Dashboard really does help find good audio at any time of the day, so check them out. And if you want a, a free access to them, you can just mention Mouthwash. Head over to Spaces Dashboard and you'll get yourself an invite. Right, that's enough pluggery. Open on to the show. Uh, time to shower Matthew in a whopping amount of emojis. So if you click the heart with a plus down the bottom and begin tapping furiously while I tell you more about him, don't stop until the end. And if you're ready, and I will give you an example here, so heart and plus, I'll give you a little what, two fingers up. There you go. Uh, just keep that going, uh, and I will tell you all about Matthew. Okay, go. Matthew Cockerell is a leading independent design consultant that's worked on many items you've probably touched throughout your life. Based in London, he and his team at Faster Not Easier Limited work on projects for the likes of Samsung, HTC, Sky, Google, Panasonic, amongst others. No futurist, Matthew instead likes to help businesses define solutions to problems or ideas that don't exist yet. Recently creating Fairphone, uh, the world's most ethical smartphone for which he added a gold lion to his award shelf, Matthew is no stranger to the limelight being featured in Forbes, Wired, Fast Company, amongst others. What did I miss out about you that people should know, Matthew? Um, I guess the fact that I once helped redesign the funeral experience for a visionary ah, We're going to talk about that later. Don't, do, don't, don't, don't <laughs> give anything away. We're going to talk about that later. Okay. All right. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Okay, good. Well, that's, that's a good tease for everyone, so that's good. Um, okay, we're going to talk about a variety of things, but let's start easy. What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Um, I think it was probably just how I was going to get my son out of bed and to school, if I'm really honest with you. Nothing inspirational. Just the everyday. Is that, is that a getting... hard job? It can be, yeah. Sometimes he's sort of reticent. He's on crutches at the moment. It can be, it can be challenging. So it's about a slow wake up and a gentle reminder over several minutes. Ah, are you aware of um, the Bones or No Bones Day? I'm not, no. Oh, there's a pug on TikTok, which basically his owner, um, he's, he's a very old pug, but he basically is um, held up. And then if he stays on his feet, it's a bones day. And if it is a no bones day, he falls back down and they mean different things. And there lots of Gen Z are taking, you know, it to make big changes in their lives and that sort of thing. So it's quite interesting. I don't know. Anyway, Google it at your leisure, should you okay. need to. Um, talk to me about the last 24 months. How have they been for you? Um. I guess like everybody, they've been um, unprecedented uh, and up and down. You know, the, I think the first six months were the hardest from a business point of view that everything really ground to a halt. If you think about um, when you're trying to think about the future 
um, and, and, and inspire companies, that's actually not much use in an emergency. So what mm. businesses tend to do is put those things on pause and spend, spend money on things that actually have an effect immediately. Um, but since then, actually, what we've found is that once people have established this sort of new normal, that they're able to start thinking again about investing in the future and, and being able to make sense of how things have changed. So it's, yeah. been, it's been quite beautiful think, then, uh, since then. Have you found that clients are more open to new, new designs and new ways of thinking or has the pandemic sort of made people go safe? Uh, no, I think it's made them go more adventurous. I think just realising how you can truly change quickly. If you think how businesses had to just reinvent themselves mm. overnight, even even humble ones like pubs and, and restaurants, I think it's given people an appetite to realise that actually with the right kind of focus, and I guess almost like a, being on a wartime footing, having that singular focus of knowing that you need to change things has really helped inspire people. So I think we can take some positives from what's really been a horrendous couple of years. Mm. Do you think also that the pandemic's made people think, oh God, I've only got 80 years or so on this rock. I better do something with it as well. I, I guess so, yeah. I think certainly in terms of having a purpose, which I guess designers often come to from a very early age, that they're mm. driven by a purpose to do these things. And I think perhaps other people in businesses realise that beyond, you know, just purely seeking growth and profit is like, what are we actually in this for? Is there a bigger picture? And, and, and that can certainly open up their ambitions, which is mm. great for designers. We're, we're, we're always interested in working with people's, uh, people with those big ambitions. That's a beautiful segue. I wish we had planned it. But tell me about the younger Matthew. What was he like? Um, I guess very insecure. I mean, if, uh, if I just dip back into my history, I actually originally trained as a mechanical engineer. Oh, wow. uh, I worked, uh, and worked like that uh, for a few years before I went back to college and retrained as an industrial designer. So I sort of emerged into the design world incredibly unsure of my talent and whether I actually had a voice and anything to say. Uh, and what made you change? Um, it's interesting that, you know, the, the way you might see how I'm presented now uh, in terms of seeming really confident and, and, and always having something to say, I guess has only come about over really 25 years of working and being having the fact that I, I have something to say affirmed and reaffirmed by people that I respect. You know, mm. the fact that I've been at companies and People that have sort of blown me out of the water have sought my advice, have, have liked what I've done. And so I'm not generally a confident person. But over those years as a designer, you, you kind of get to a point where, well, if those people that I really respect and, and um, really appreciate their vision think I'm good, I must be. And that's sort of enough for me now. Mm. You know, um, I, I think there's always this talk with most people, to be honest, but particularly in the artistic world, that, that there's this imposter syndrome. And we still have it. But as a designer, as you get more experience, the thing that I think is encouraging is that experience gives you the confidence to say, look, I know I'll get to something good in the end and actually let go of the fear and the worry that at the beginning of a project, well, I've no idea how to do this. I, I, well, I've no idea where we're going to get to in the end. And you can embrace that when you're more confident and you have the experience that you've done that many times and it's normally always worked out. You know, that that gives you that sort of inner, inner confidence, I think, too. So then I think... Um, open up a bit and be prepared to take risks and actually seem foolish. That's actually one of the things I really try and do, particularly in workshops with clients is mm. can you sometimes be the most foolish person in the room to sort of lower the tension and make people understand that what you're speaking at any particular moment, you're not trying to drop pearls of wisdom that will wow everybody and they'll think you're impressive. Mm. You're trying to share ideas and stimulate debate. And, and I think by, by trying to lose some ego 
and, and be slightly foolish, you'll be surprised the ideas that you can get to because it sort of it, it loosens you up and helps you unlock things. Yeah, I mean, it's the same in sales as well. They, they call it the dummy curve, where it's essentially that you um, you play the dummy so that you get people asking you more questions so that you can then help them in a better way because you know what their actually needs are and that sort of thing. So I, 100%, I can, I can see the, the parallels with that. Um, talk to me about the design world. If you only had, say, I don't know, up to 10 words to describe the design world right now, what would they be and why? Um, I... I guess I would describe it as as diverse and fragmented. You know, we talk about design as if it's one kind of thing, but it's so many things in so many different areas, even within my particular field of sort of industrial design. Mm. You know, um, and, and people are, are, are individuals. We think of them as, as, you know, when you're looking at recruiting and things, it's OK, we're hiring for a director, a senior associate, a, a junior designer. And you can swap those out, but people aren't actually interchangeable. That the, the variation in design and their focus and thinking is so different that actually hiring on titles doesn't really work. It's about, I think, hiring on approach and, and, and sort of framing and what their aptitude is. Mm. Um, let's talk about your work with Fairphone. Um, it was pretty amazing. I remember getting the press release for it. Um, I didn't know you had anything to do with it then. Um, and I read it and I went, oh, wow, finally, someone's got it that they've made a phone that can be recycled, upcycled, updated and that sort of stuff. And I thought we saw it with Google as well. But they obviously got rid of their version of it. It wasn't super re recyclable, I must admit, but it was modular. Um, I think a lot of people saw the future in that phone. Um, actually, in some ways, I think Apple probably was listening. They've, they've announced that they'll allow consumers to replace batteries um, recently and that. Um, but tell us about Fairphone and how it came about. So the founder of Fairphone, Baz, had this idea that really, again, going back to this idea of purpose, he wanted to change the way products are made. And his idea really was that how does he communicate the fact that the way we make products aren't right as they are. They don't last long enough. They are quite destructive in the process. And the mm. people involved in the manufacturing um, can really suffer. So we decided to choose a smartphone as something that everybody understood and try and actually make one. And that's really when he came to us. That was when I was working at Seymour Powell. And this was back in 2014. With the idea, really, that from a sustainable point of view, the best thing that you can do is keep the product that you already own. You've already expended all of the carbon, all of the energy, all of the materials to get to that point. So how could we create a phone that could basically last a lot longer? You know, traditionally, a, a phone might be replaced every couple of years. It would have another user, but it tends to be a sort of a three to four year window. So how could we extend that? And, and through working with him and his team, we really got to a point of thinking about modular um, for two reasons. One, from the very practical point of view of, yes, how do we repair this thing easily? Because up to that point, it was very difficult to repair because the product focus has been on miniaturizing a product, making it as thin as possible. You know, designers, we talk about the Z stack, which is really the thickness. Can we stack the number of components on top of each other, squeeze out all of the air and get these things as thin as possible? And in marketing terms, that was really the way products were judged for many years. I don't even remember when things like iPads came out and Steve Jobs would be comparing it to a pencil and everything was about millimeters. And so you have to let go of some of that. And we thought, by making it modular, we can make it easier to repair, not needing an expert, you know, who's got lots of training. But the other thing was actually to use the device as a storytelling tool by the user being able to open this thing up on their own initially without any screwdrivers or anything. We ended up thinking about the idea of designing for what we call a cafe moment, that once you sat down in a cafe with your friends, 
you, you tend to naturally put your phone on the table. Most people at that time had iPhones or, or, or Android. And you put this weird sort of fair phone down there and people start asking you questions. The fact that you could disassemble it in front of you, remove the battery, take off the screen in a few seconds and then sort of unscrew a module allowed you to tell a story about all the elements of the phone. So if you looked at the Fairphone 2, which was the one that I designed, there's various messaging within there and even a little map of the Democratic Republic of Congo showing where some of the tin and tantalum has been mined from. Mm. Really this idea that, you know, what you're holding in the hand is this sort of supercomputer, but fundamentally it starts off with somebody, you know, rather appallingly often in flip-flops and shorts digging, you know, material out of the ground to be to be ultimately refined and processed into these high technology components. Mm. How long did um, you work on it? Um, I guess in total it was probably about a year and a half. What, is that all? A year and a half? Yeah. So oh. if you if you think about the, the the process of how a product comes to market, you you have time up to a point in a brief where you decide what to do, and often that involves. Um, somebody deciding what they should do using marketing strategy and business then it involves early stage design where you're really trying to conceive of what the concept is and, and, and work it out and then that passes over into a phase of productionization where it becomes about detailed design design for manufacture um, logistics and, and, and delivery so while from thinking about a product through to it hitting the shops could take three or four years different designers have different parts of that journey so mm -hmm. I was involved in that early stage from the vision through to the concept and developing the prototypes. And then with the internal team at Fairphone, they shepherd it through with their engineers to work with the, uh, the OEMs that they'd uh, identified to help them manufacture the product. Mm. And when you start with a product like that, are you creating a new version of something that's highly controlled, highly competitive, sort of usually within ecosystems and that sort of stuff? Um, mm -hmm. A, it was a world first and that sort of stuff. But what are the considerations and challenges that, say, differ from a normal brief? Well, I guess that before we get to the challenges, the easiest thing was the fact that the, the brief was compelling and exciting and gave you an opportunity because mm -hmm. it was the idea. The challenge was, how do we make this phone last for longer? So immediately that's something to start building on. Normally what you get with a, with a product is how do you make it thinner? You know, how do we make it look better than the last generation yeah. in order to make this more attractive and sell it? So in that point, it was it was relatively easy and it was great. We can really open this up and and, and sort of explore. And But at, at that point, it's then starting to think about how how do you do this and whether you go modular? How do we make this understandable for people? You know, we, we don't want to open this device up and for it to look rather like a dumbed down version we want to be honest but we want to make it simple so mm. a lot of the challenge was really getting that balance between not making it look toy-like and faking the idea that they're seeing under the hood at the same time designing it in a way that's understandable for people that aren't used to typically navigating the inside of some consumer electronics and actually allow them to repair things with very little training and i guess that's one of the challenges you know you, you spoke about apple yesterday actually saying that they'll start selling components and manuals uh, for the iPhone 12 and 13, I think. But at, at this point, those phones haven't been designed for user repair. Yeah. They've, been de they've been designed for repair by trained professionals. So that's a real interesting point. I guess the advantage we've got is we designed the Fairphone to be, you know, I started talking about, you know, trying to make it as easy to repair the Fairphone as changing the batteries in a child's toy to mm. make it understandable and approachable in a way people are used to using that process. Mm. Um. 
let's talk about planned obsolescence. You mentioned it ever so briefly back a minute ago. Um, it's something that bothers me greatly when it comes to tech and products. So it's, for those of you not aware, it's building in failure, in essence, to sell more or a fresher sales cycle so that people buy more. Um, where are we uh, with design and planned obsolescence? How big of an issue is it for designers? Uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't agree with planned obsolescence. In the 25 that I, years that I've been working, never has that word been mentioned in a brief or in a meeting. Never have we been designing products to fail. Mm. What, what really happens is, is two things. <clears throat> if you think about why does, a, why does a product fail? A product fails, first of all, because it breaks. And the reason it breaks is, is, is generally down to how long you decided to design it for at what price. So often the drive in the market is to produce products that are cheaper. So if we take something like washing machines, you know, you can buy a washing machine now in Curry's, I think, for £100. If you yeah. think about how many components that is and the fact that it's probably shipped from Mexico or something, and the fact that actually if that's £100 at retail, well, that probably means that that product out of the factory had to cost £10. Well, how long do you expect a £10 washing machine to last? You know, so... A lot of the fact that these things are failing and are not planned to make somebody um, replace them. They're designed at a price to actually make those things accessible. You know, in, in the past, washing machines would be vastly expensive things that not everybody could afford. So that's the side where it's around failure. The other side is around where technology evolves and performance gets better. So my iPhone that I've got now is, is five years old. And it could continue to work probably for another five years. But they'll get to a point where it just becomes uncompetitive because there's been advances in screen technologies and in phones where it's it, it, it's it's not giving me the same kind of functionality so I, I i don't particularly agree with planned obsolescence i i think that the problem that we have got is around the word consumer and around consumption so what we get is the idea that a, a way a company makes money is to sell more stuff mm. and so there's always a mo underlying motivation to take advantage of new performance, but actually to get people, you know, it's not articulated and, and it's not decided, but it benefits companies if we have faster replacement cycles for our products because they only make profit um, by selling a product as opposed to a service like Spotify, uh, you know, where they actually pay for delivering a continual service. They're not interested actually in selling stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I, I swing between whether it's laziness on companies behalf or not having faith in their products so that people you know wouldn't buy another product from them or something or they don't want to design more products and sort of launch them because the risk of failure is so high just going back uh, up for a bit what are the biggest well, problems oh sorry go on. yeah i was just going to touch on that i think mm -hmm. a, a lot of the time it's, it's actually about affordability you mm -hmm. know can somebody afford to buy that product so you know you can get some amazing washing machines if we just stay with that product for, for a moment from melee and bosch that can cost 900 pounds well lots of people in the world can't afford that and actually offering mm. a washing machine for 150 pounds makes it accessible you know it is more expensive in the long run because if you had the money up front you know that that sort of 900 pound washing machine could outlast probably you know more than 10 cheap washing machines but it's a fact that you just people can't afford that and if, if you look in developing countries with things like fmcg you get people that are paid weekly and actually can't afford things like bars of soap uh, or, or, or sort of bottles of shampoo. So what mm. people like Unilever and Procter & Gamble do is produce sachets that small shops will sell and very small bars of soap. So this isn't about, um, you know, trying to make things more expensive. It's about trying to make it uh, accessible. 
definitely, I think, one way of looking at it for sure. Um, let's go back up high for a bit. What are the biggest problems the design world faces right now? I think there's really it's the idea of consumption and, and growth that, that ultimately what design is producing is new things. Mm. Okay, you know, each each time a designer is working, they are designing a new thing which will ultimately replace something that went before, and and sort of what becomes inherent is that in that is this idea of fashion. If you think about clothes, there's many clothes that we shed not because they've necessarily worn out, but they just feel not quite as contemporary. And we've seen a new look that we're really attracted to. So I think there's a real sort of tipping point that we're getting to with designers where we have to think about not so much focusing on the very new, but actually focusing on what we could do with designers with existing products. So beyond things like repair, you know, beyond things um, like recycling and think about actually as designers, could we look at taking products that already exist and actually re rebirthing them in some way to be more contemporary products? I think that's one of the biggest challenges because at the moment, the way we conceive products is still in a linear system. It's not circular. You know, ultimately, a linear system, if you think about repair and recycling, we have to do it. We should be doing it now. But ultimately, all that is doing is slowing the process of these products going to a grave. So at the moment, you can imagine that our consumer products are, uh, you know, going to a grave early. And so great, we'll bring in repair and we'll bring in recycling. All that's going to do is slow down the death rate of these products. They will still eventually die and we'll recycle them. We won't be able to recycle everything. You know, lots of materials can't mm. infinitely be recycled in the way that we mechanically recycling them at the moment. So, so for me, it's design about not designing around newness, but designing around things that already exist. Mm. I, th I think everyone can get behind that for sure. I, I mean, I was interested that you didn't sort of mention diversity. Uh, and that I hear it all the time and I read it in the design annuals um, that I'm obsessed with, even though it's got very little to do with my day job and that sort of stuff. Um, I, I like what Google's doing with their AI and photography efforts, you know, yep. using different sort of photography to capture different skin tones and that. Do you think um, tech firms are doing enough uh, when it comes to rethinking to include more people? Uh, I'm I'm not sure to be honest. Like, you know, I, I I work with some of them, and I think certainly within the processes that we have, there's a lot of work that's been done to consider other people's perspectives. You know, from the beginning when you're carrying out insights, and I guess as a designer, always what you're trying to do, unless you're an author designer who who has some star quality, where a company is paid to deliver your vision to the market. What I'm trying to do is is produce products that are acceptable for different people. So part of the process is to get insights into their lives and needs, understand where there's commonality, but understand where there's difference. And, and, and a lot of that is around testing and, and observing. But I'm mm. sure it isn't, it isn't always right. And, and, you know, the issue of diversity, if you have more diverse teams, it's going to bring more aspects to that, whether that's race or gender or, or even class, which has recently been talked about, I noticed. The idea of if you look at demographics of people and where, where they originally come from and, and come through university. It's very difficult as a designer, you know, there's always this, I guess it's an excuse, but this idea that, you know, when I was in a, in a bigger studio, you really want to recruit people, but they're not there and they're not available in a, in a diverse way. And so a lot of the, some of the effort that I put in is actually to, to not look at where designers are now, but talking to younger people. Um, and I'm part of a, a group called My Big Career, where we look at actually speaking to students when they're nine through to 13, where they're making these life choices, and try and wow. bring that designer voice in to inspire them 
because if you look at once you get to university, everybody's been filtered out and you, you've got this narrow pot that you're having to recruit from in your design agency. So mm. I'm actually putting less effort in, you know, especially as an individual consultant in that and more in thinking, how can I just make connections with people that wouldn't normally think about a career in design? Um, you know, when I, when I if I think about myself, for instance, I, I didn't really know design existed uh, in a discrete profession and what I'm doing now until I was probably about 20. You know, I, I, I had design education at school that, that talked about um, things that other people would do and actually what we should be doing. And when we spoke to our careers advisor, it was about getting a job in the local factory or the local company. So education, I think, is, is so important to give people that idea that there are opportunities in the creative industries. And it's, it's a lot better than when I was around. But I mm. think there's something about talking to younger people about giving the confidence and actually telling them there are opportunities. And even if we look at the amount of income that the creative industries generate, it's massive, even though so much of the careers is pushed towards other areas. So I think for me, it's focusing on younger people and just giving them my perspective and showing them the exciting world that could exist and sort of helping where I can. Mm. Um, speaking of exciting worlds, I guess we, we have to talk about Apple on a show about design. Um, are they really good at design or are they just really good at selling us things? Um, I think it's interesting. I think what they're really great at is, is engineering amazing products. If you, if you think fundamentally about they've redefined the landscape of what we find acceptable in products, the, the focus for them is actually not on the aesthetics. It, it's about the archetype of the product, what it should do, and actually a, a, a sort of an incredible amount of focus on how it's built and the best way to build it. You know, if, if you look at how, if we go back to the early days of even the, the iPhones, before I think we got to sort of, I think it was like the iPhone 4, when they, that when they moved to what they called unibody, before then products were made with injection moldings or pressings. And I think Johnny Ive within the company, with his team developed this idea of actually making products at massive scale using CNC machining. And, and those kind of things are wild and incredibly crazy and going against convention that you could never do that at mass production. But what they do is have that vision to realize the kind of quality that that could deliver in build quality and functionality and go out and buy 10,000 CNC machines and just start doing it. So for me, as a designer, when I look at them, I think it's about they have a singular focus on how do we build an engineer the best product possible. And, and that doesn't happen in every company. In lots of companies, it's about how do we add the most value? How do we get things to market in the simplest way? And how do we make this as, as attractive as possible? So the focus is on being design used for, for the sort of external appearance. And I, I think what Apple is so admired for, and we kind of take it for granted because it is just rippled out across all the other companies, is how fundamentally they look at how they engineer products from a manufacturing point of view, but also about the right kind of products that we should interact with. You know, we know that the format of a phone is an iPhone and the format of a tablet is an iPad. Well, lots of companies had 10 years to try and work that and they didn't. Even though we look at the final result and say, isn't that simple? Well, that's obvious, I could draw that. But nobody did, nobody did these devices before them. So although as a, as a big company, they have their downsides, I'm still massively admiring of the, the design power that they use to actually deliver some incredible products. Oh, I am right there with you. I have nothing but love for Apple. I do see a darker side forming um, on their software fronts and controllable elements. But um, from an engineering standpoint, they've done some really, really interesting things. I think mm -hmm. they, they, they put a stopgap in progress sometimes. A good example is QR codes. Um, I think 
they they could do a lot more to free up a lot more. But but they're not a bad. Well, I can't say that. I don't think well, they're an all bad company. That's what I can say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I, doesn't it get to the heart of things when you're talking about freeing things up? It's always that balance between existing in a ward garden where everything's controlled and everything's designed, and so they ensure that everything works. And that does put limitations on what individuals might want to do, as opposed to an Android ecosystem where it's a lot more open but can be more chaotic. And I almost think it's almost like a personality-driven thing. I think for some people who, who you know, for, for lots of people, they, they just want to get on with their lives and these products that we have are tools. For some people, you know, it's about being creative and uh, experimenting and doing different things. Uh, absolutely. I've, I've just flipped to a Pixel 6 myself, and oh, I can okay. tell you they are worlds apart. <laughs> yeah. Bet, Where I you bet. think things are, they wouldn't be, and that there's menu systems. Anyway, it's a, it's a big old mess, but I'm yeah, learning yeah, new yeah. things, and I think that will probably help my dendrites in my brain, so maybe Alzheimer's <laughs> will be staved off for another 30 seconds. Who knows? Um, <clears throat> all roads, even Apple ones, uh, tend to lead to China these days. Let's talk about there for a bit. Um, I see a lot of good design coming from China and the surrounding areas. Should we be learning more from them? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think China and not, not forgetting South Korea. You know, yes, if, if you think about the, the journey of where design has come from, traditionally it was, it was held um, certainly in, the, in, in sort of this century and, and last century was held within the West. And we, we sort of started using design a lot earlier on and became very skilled. And it seemed like, China and, and Korea were so far behind, but I think with the connected world that we've got now, they're on a par and often surpassing, particularly in terms of the design of physical products, because the challenge you've got is, uh, or the advantage you've got in Korea and China is that they're next to manufacturing facilities, so they really understand how to make products. In, in that vein, how worried are you and clients about China and their ability to replicate designs quickly? Does that inspire them to be more protective or better or does that implement your sorry influence your design in any way um i guess the only side of that with manufacturers what they what they're looking to doing often is is to create products that are better and think are there ways to protect those to make them harder to copy you know it's very hard to protect the visual appearance of a product but it's it's a lot easier to protect how the thing is assembled or mm. the kind of manufacturing techniques that you use. But I think it's it, it, it's sort of old language, really, to think about China really being and, and Korea really being about fast followers. They're not anymore. You know, if you look at Oppo, if, if you look at Xiaomi, people like that, and even Huawei, they're starting to have the confidence to sort of go out, go out on their own and, and, and have their own uh, have their own sort of ideas. You know, there is still mm -hmm. a, there is always a market for fast followers. But I think we're getting to a point where we have sort of global manufacturers that, that, that are equal to each other. I think what is interesting from a design point of view is that hardware used to be the hero and that used to be the thing going you know, from Alessi in the 80s through to the 90s, whereas really now it's software driven. And, and, and what you start to notice is that the, the real innovation is, is generally, you know, in, in terms of how you use the products is coming from software and media companies. And so whether that's, um, whether that's Google and Amazon that are establishing hardware units or even you know, companies like Sky doing their own TV. Um, we've got these brands, and I also noticed recently Lululemon are bringing on sort of some computer vision products onto the market. So yes. what you're starting to find is that what's more exciting are these digital companies looking at offering experiences and thinking about the hardware that might facilitate more interesting and more interactive experiences. So that, that's an area that I sort of work in quite a bit, and I think it's fascinating because the, the conversation is less about can we make a profit on this single object? And it's more like 
uh, on our service subscription model, how can we offer our users continued reasons to use us and, and to stay with us and to offer extra features and, and new features? And, and we're seeing that, you know, uh, in the way that Apple are sort of focusing on services as well as still delivering amazing hardware. Mm. Um, you mentioned Sky there. Um, I went to their launch of um, Sky Glass, oh, the, the yeah, first yeah. TV that will yeah. soon have a Microsoft Connect element where you can sort of do things like take calls, do fitness in the home and that sort of stuff. Um, is the pandemic driving these, some say, invasions of privacy and leaps for presence in the home? Or is something else at play here? Why do TVs need cameras in them? Well, they don't if you just want to watch TV. Mm. I think what, what, what we find as designers is when you look at cameras and think about what they're about, it's about they offer new functionalities. And often with emerging technologies, you, you have a technology that matures at a particular point through science and through engineering that it, all, it almost then becomes part of the menu of a company developing new products. And it's about companies being intelligent enough to say, is this a product that can benefit our users? Can we add to our service? Of course, there are issues around privacy with cameras and things like that that can be resolved uh, over time. But I think for me, it's about looking at these new technologies and thinking, is it, is it valuable? You know, is it going to offer something to the company and to the user? And is it acceptable and does it fit into people's lives? But I, I think as, as designers like myself who are at the very early front end of things with new technologies, what we're interested in doing is, is you know, you mentioned things like sort of doing fitness and, and, and sort of doing video calls and things like that. We'll, we'll look at that and think, yes, that technology can do that. But as a designer, your mind is thinking, well, if we have a home and we have a camera, you know, in the home and it's able to sort of do pose detection and object detection because of machine learning, what other things could we do within the home? And it opens up possibilities. You know, I, I think COVID has accelerated the idea or the acceptance of actually we can do new things in the home. And to begin with, it's about importing existing things like working from home, you know, or, or going to the gym. So we've worked from the office, you know, being in a gym and we've imported into those homes. And now we've got all of these technologies and many people have smart speakers, have TVs, you know, and perhaps have these cameras. But as a basis, that starts to then be a new platform. So there's an opportunity here, and I, I think it's a nascent platform, really, of, the, of, of what we as designers call ambient computing. So it's less about screens and it's more about voice and actions in the room and thinking, well, based on that, are there other things that you can do within your home, you know, beyond fitness and, and, and beyond, you know, well-being or, or, or beyond work? And part of a designer's job with new technologies to think what those are. So it's not always about let's just do a new, better washing machine. Let's do a faster smartphone. You know, a, a lot of what I do, actually, and the focus of what I do is working with companies when the product is to break new ground. It's not making a new X or a new Y, making it more efficient, making it thinner. It's saying, OK, this is where we are now. What could we possibly do in the future? How could we do different things? You know, we're a company making X, but we know that things are changing. So do we need to think about pivoting and exploring a totally new way of doing things? And, mm. and to do that, you sort of require a different kind of design process you know if you understand i guess um the, the experience of the product that you've made before you have lots of data on it and you, you can interview people and you can get their user needs but with new products you know really truly new platforms that i help companies try and develop there, there often isn't the data or the experience and there isn't even an articulated user need there's just an, a technology a shift in social trends and a and a and a, and a a sort of change into society that thinks there's an opportunity. So design there plays a different role, really, around discovery, 
and, and sort of imagining what might be possible and then really trying to properly test whether that's really valuable in people's lives or whether it's sort of, you know, designer nonsense. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot which is, you know, in my work, I try and actually avoid the word futures too much because mm -hmm. it's, been ta it's been tainted a little bit. And some people sort of put themselves up as futurologists. But actually, in my work, a lot of what I do to start projects is actually to think back from something like 2030 to try and sort of escape the gravitational pull of today and, and really get to something valuable that can inform what we start building, you know, in, in sort of 2022. And that's mm. not about the escapism and futurism you see in Hollywood. You know, you, op you often see the minority reports or the future concepts. That's often driven by marketing. I guess you'd call them equity plays. Hey, let's do a future concept. We've got a trade show coming up. It's CES, it's IFA, you know, it's a car show. We'll, we'll put a stand on, you know, we'll dress some people in silver suits with blue lighting and we'll tell them that's the future. That, that's really not how you get to new stuff. That, that's sort of just marketing. In mm. terms of foundational design, it's about actually trying to discover fundamentally new things that people can do and work out whether there's any value there. You know, lo lots of the stuff we design and lots of things that come to market give really good demo, uh, but, but don't really provide any lasting value. And I guess that's at the heart of so much of what I do. Can you move beyond just giving, you know, good demo with new technology, whether it's, you know, whether it's VR, AR, whether it's folding screens, you know, whether it's the metaverse, all of these things that we're dealing with in these buzzwords is to say, well, look, they, they might make a really interesting experiment at Disney World or in a new Facebook shop that's opening where I can go into the metaverse and try it out. But, you know, are you going to how do you create something where the user's going to try it and go, actually, I can see that as being relevant in my life. There isn't a space there for it now. But that seems valuable enough for me to sort of take that in and start using it as opposed to sort of putting the headset down on the counter and smiling, say, oh, thank you. And, and sort of walking out of the shop. Mm. Um, well, you mentioned it. So let's talk about it. The future is, if we believe, um, in a book, the metaverse. Um, does this excite designers such as yourself? It seems to, um, but in a realistic sort of way, based on what you just said. But the blend of physical and digital is a kind of new sandbox, right? Um, well, it's been around for a while. I mean, I find it in incredibly fascinating. I, I think the problem with the metaverse is it so gets wrapped up in the buzzwords of the day uh, with something that, that, you know, if you go back to 3D TV or 5G or blockchain, these things just become words. And I, I think what we'll find in a few years time, the metaverse will probably feel as dated as if you remember far back to when we used to describe the Internet as the information superhighway. Yeah. It doesn't really clearly define what this thing is going to do. I think as a designer, it's incredibly interesting to think about how the physical and the digital are merged and more intimately connected. The problem we've got now is if you think about this point of trying to think about how things will be different in the future from today, when we look at AR, what it becomes is, oh, OK, what I'm going to do is take 2D graphics from my phone and hover it in front of my space using augmented reality with my spectacles. And what that's doing is taking the paradigm of computing today and sort of projecting it onto this new platform. And I think for designers, our role is to think, well, actually, if we have this capability, are there different ways that we can provide digital elements to our world that isn't literally putting a label telling us where the nearest subway station is, you know, or, or, or having some bunny ears on top of our head? Although mm. it's kind of interesting within augmented reality, you'll find actually... The people who are doing the most progressive things with AR, it's coming from Snapchat and it's coming from TikTok, where it's actually looking at, you know, at filters onto people's faces where they're actually defining their personalities by things. So designers are always fascinated by the new. 
it's about as a designer trying to see past the sort of the bluster and the, the promotion and the various business agendas and think about what's what's fundamentally valuable here that can allow us to do something new rather than oh great we can you know port our apps to this new platform that's the metaverse and, and there's some truly horrible sort of you know offices where you know i think microsoft were doing things where you have an avatar that's sort of or even with facebook where it's a, an avatar to the waist you know from the waist up where yeah. you're in a meeting and you're dealing with these emojis and things like that i think it's going to be really interesting i i'm i'm intrigued to see how much designers have uh, restraint when building for it and also inspiration to go nuts you know and that sort of thing should our offices be just holographic things of wherever we're sat i don't particularly want that myself but maybe in some times that would be useful but at the same time do i want my uh, office to be a massive concert hall or something like that probably not either but the potential's there i, I wonder how much it's going to be sort of like reeled in and sort of pushed back but well, anything that you would recommend for designers looking out for when designing for metaverses obviously because yeah. they're not around the corner but they're about five to ten years away but you know similar yeah yeah absolutely and, and the ultimate thing I, I would say when you're looking at trying to create totally new experiences rather than extensions of existing uh, existing things is, is to have a, a laser focus uh, on prototyping, but not prototyping the product so much in terms of the physical and the digital things that actually make it work, but actually prototyping the experience, how it feels to be in these places, how it feels to act those things out. Because what that does is uncover the inherent value in these experiences. So, you know, Facebook, <clears throat> Microsoft have and will invest billions in prototyping these virtual meetings and these avatars and things like that. And so much of the focus is on getting the technology right and making those things actually work. Well, before you spend those billions, what design allows you to do is actually prototype those um, in, in more of an experiential way where you actually, sometimes we call it Wizard of Oz prototyping. And often that's about mm. creating a room where you can experience some of these things, but they're not being driven by machine learning that's taken a couple of years to train and invested millions of pounds. But it's somebody in a back room turning switches when they're looking at a human moving and triggering various things. So, you know, a, a lot of what I try and do with these early things is actually rehearse the future. You know, design is about trying to make something tangible, an idea, physical, or digital that you can put in people's hands and, and interrogate it. And, and to get to a point where people can actually wear a new VR headset or an AR headset takes millions of dollars, but actually to prototype the experience is a lot easier. And, and in fact, my process is actually borrowing a lot from theater techniques. If you think about how you put on a play, how you create an experience, you actually have to write a script and you actually have to do improvisation because often these experiences, these new ones that are happening are very social. You know, a lot of smartphones and tablets, yes, it connected us to people, but it was very often just us in front of a screen. Whereas the experiences in the metaverse that we're doing is about people interacting. So a lot of the work with designers is about really prototyping those experiences. That would be my recommendation. And I, I've, I've done it for you know, clients for a number of years now. Mm. Um, so a slight uh, shift before we do your Desert Island tweet. Um, you mentioned it earlier. You did work with the billionaire Bjark. I hope that's how we say it, Inglés. Um, he asked you to re-envision the funeral experience, if I understand correctly. How, how to so, make funerals better? <laughs> yeah, so um, really, so Bjark Ingalls was the architect, um, but we were working for a visionary billionaire that I, that I won't mention his name. But he had this idea that people should be remembered in different ways. And, and 
yes, we can bury the body somewhere in a cemetery, but how do we remember people's lives? So he had this idea that he wanted to have a way of capturing people's stories and allowing them to be retold into the future in a time where actually our memories are digital and they're actually very fragile. You know, we often think that digital is safer than in a book, you know, that it can't be burnt and stuff. But with digital rot and changes in digital formatting, you'll be surprised how quickly, you know, some files that you have or even some photos are unreadable in the future. So actually what it came to working with Bjarke Ingels, he, him and his company were designing the building within which you would store your memories. And so we ended up designing a physical artifact that represented somebody's life, but that could actually store their stories on there that could survive a technology that could survive a thousand years and in a thousand years still be read by people and enjoyed and experienced. So that's the most far out crazy thing. But what I found the most interesting thing about that was that in order to think about that future and think about making things last longer, it was more important to look about and look into the past. Because if you look at the very latest technology that's around you now, that's the kind of stuff that probably isn't going to be around for a long time. Whereas if you look at older technologies that have been there for a long time, there's a, a great example of um, the BBC wanted to do a new doomsday project in the 80s. And so they gathered together all this information. And I think it was with Blue Peter. Mm. And they decided to store it on the very latest technology. And it was a laser disc. So they installed all this technology on amazing laser disc. And, and five years later, it was unreadable because that format wasn't adopted, <laughs> even though it was the very latest future technology. And, and the starting point for this project was, well, yeah, maybe we have some NFC. And it's like, well, is NFC going to be available in a thousand years? So we ended up looking at things like microfiche and doing solid state memory and things like that. So that was incredible to have that reach and, and, and really that, that license as a designer to imagine that grand and, and that far ahead and, and that bold. Mm. Okay, uh, it's time for your Desert Island Tweets, the part of Mouthwash where you get to pick a tweet or two that's changed your mind in some way uh, or some thinking in some way. So if everyone who's listening can turn their attention to the nest, you've picked a tweet by Cameron Tonkinwise. And if you want to follow him, he's at Cameron TW. And the tweet reads, It is weird to me when designers talk to other designers as if the double diamond was actually how design happens and not the dangerously reductive way designers describe designing to risk-averse value managers with MBAs so that they'll let designers design. Why did you pick this one? I think because it's it's something that designers talk about all the time. And, and actually, particularly in consultancy, perhaps you, you spend a lot of your time trying to explain a design process to non-designers. And, and a lot of the time, the focus is on de-risking because it's very, you know, it, it's very hard to trust in a designer. We, we, we're not often accredited. You don't know, you know, it's very hard to tell a great designer from an okay designer when you're uneducated in this world. And mm. I, I think he, he articulated, I think what we talked about a lot at Seymour Powers, this idea that the double diamond isn't a thing that was invented and then designers learned it at school and said, we're going to follow a double diamond process. What you had was academics. And I think it was originally the design council studied designers in their natural, you know, in the wild and started to see these patterns that were sort of codified into this idea of a, of a double diamond and the problem with that is then it becomes solidified as this process that clients start teaching back to you to say okay in order to design we want to run through with this process and i think the great thing about design is that it involve it evolves and the fact that design isn't actually linear you know you don't do just all of your research at the beginning mm. and all of your design at the end it's kind of a whirlwind yes you're progressing and you're evolving and the fidelity is changing but that process isn't really described very well in the double diamond. And I, I think it's the hardest thing 
to have to try and create the space where design can really thrive. You know, you mentioned before about Apple and how, you know, in terms of their design, and we look for them design and you think, oh my God, their design is so amazing. They've done these amazing designs. It's not like within organizations, other designers didn't design products in a similar way. It's the organizational structure and the leadership within Apple allow those products to sort of come through and those ideas to come through, you know, because, you know, ultimately designs and ideas that we have as designers are incredibly fragile and they could be squashed because they're unproven and it's really easy to criticize and sort of break them down. And I, I think there's an area of the most important thing is to create some space that allows designers to thrive, mm. you know, without us being indulgent and, and, and having a focus on where we're trying to get to. But ultimately for a designer, you know, they're the ones that should decide how can they be best inspired how can they best make, which is ultimately what we're trying to do, is make a leap of imagination to something new. As designers, the answer isn't out there. It, you know, we're not trying to uncover it by digging it up or recording it or capturing it. We, we, we have to do this fact finding and, and observe people. But what we're trying to do as designers is, is feed our head in order to have that magical process of creation that makes us make a leap to something new that leads us on another trail. And that, and that can't be distilled down into a double diamond. And it certainly can't be distilled down into the mural, the mural templates of innovation that we, that we get today. Mm. I think that's a superb place to leave the conversation tonight and a great uh, sentiment as well. Um, I can't thank you enough for being part of Mouthwash. Um, any final thoughts for the listeners when it comes to being better designers? I, I guess that the thing that's most important now is to really understand that we have to go through accelerated change. You know, it's clear from global heating, people's expectations around consumption, that our systems need to change. So as designers, we can only do so much. I think what we really need in our design processes and within our companies is systemic change. That's the thing that I'm sort of really focusing on now, that how can I play my part to think about how can we radically change those things, learn, learn from COVID and really accelerate these, these changes to answer the challenges that are, are being thrown at us today and in the future. Brilliant. Okay, I've got another amazing cohort of people this season on Mouthwash, from big tech to entrepreneurs, designers, speechwriters, best-selling authors, big tech, Silicon Valley startups to healthcare specialists. If it's important to being a better person, business or planet, we're going to be talking about it. Up next is Walmart's senior brand strategist, Anna Sheckman, and we're talking about what else but better brands. Uh, whether it's your business, your personal brand, or where branding is going, there's a lot to discuss, so make sure you tune in. Uh, if you want to get an SMS alert when we go live, just head over to mouthwash.norby.live and they'll sort you out with a nice little text message. Okay, once again, my thanks to the superb Matthew Cockerell. Follow him on Twitter and it's math64 and his website is matthew-cockerell.com. So please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emojis for Matthew as the lo-fi music plays us out. Thank you for joining. Thanks for Ecology for planting a tree for every one of you and thanks to Space Dashboard for helping good audio be found. I've been Paul Armstrong. This has been Mouthwash. Fresh chat that leaves more confident only on Twitter spaces.